Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here at CES and I am with Andrew Stein. Andrew is a computer vision engineer at Anki. Uh, and Anki is, uh, well, I'll let Andrew tell you all about Anki. Um, Andrew, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thanks, thanks. It's cool to be here. I, um, yeah, I can tell you a little bit about uh, Anki's background and then a little bit about our products uh, and uh, Cosmo specifically. So, Anki is a consumer robotics company, and we currently have two products uh, that are both in the entertainment space. Um, one is Anki Overdrive, which is a, a car racing game. It's been out for several years, and uh, you can control the cars from your phone, and they can drive themselves. Mm. And you, you play against them like you would play in a video game, but instead of looking at a screen, you've got actual cars driving around on a real track in your living room. Okay. Um, and sort of along those same lines, which in some sense is bringing a physical product to life, uh, Cosmo is a little robot character like you would see on the big screen, but brought to life and real. So the goal is to really try to take this little robot character that, you know, the kinds of things we've seen in movies, but actually make a real one. And I think that's kind of a, a core tenet of the company is trying to bring physical products to life, trying to deliver on sort of this promise of, of robotics and AI in consumer products. And specifically, Cosmo is very focused on on character and personality. So mm -hmm. you play little games with him, he can recognize your face, he can play little games. If you leave him alone, he can sort of do his own thing. He has three little cubes that he can carry around and make stacks out of, and uh, and they have lights on them, you can play games with them. He also gets a little feisty, doesn't he? Yes, he has, <laughs> he has a lot of personality, and that is a big part of it. So I, uh, I sort of would say that we're, you know, half core robotics company with, you know, all the tech that goes with robotics, okay, um, which is very multidisciplinary, right? It brings together a lot of different disciplines. Um, and we all add to that, you know, a whole team of animators and character designers who are focused on the character of Cosmo. Who is he and what does he, what, what is his personality okay. and what does he like? And that's sort of another big part of the, of the company and the experience. And I think that's what's sort of cool about the company is bringing those two sides of things together. Wow. Wow. And you work on computer vision. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and, uh, how you got involved in CV? Uh, sure. So going way back, uh, in undergrad, uh, for whatever reason, I took a, a class, I think it was, might have been a graduate level class, but it sounded cool on computer vision. Okay. Uh, really liked the professor, ended up working with him as a sort of an undergraduate researcher and stayed and did uh, a master's degree there at Georgia Tech and uh, had always uh, enjoyed like working with robotics. I actually had a job in high school doing doing robotics uh, for sorting garments, hangered garments actually, built okay. giant industrial robots. And those two things I think both kind of struck a chord with me uh, and then nice. went to uh, Carnegie Mellon to pursue my PhD in robotics and okay. focused on computer vision there. Okay. Uh, and so how does computer vision fit into uh, Cosmo? Like Cosmo is so small, I don't even see a camera in here Yeah, so this, his camera is actually in his face. Uh, okay. if, you, if you look at him, the little hole there that kind of looks like a mouth is his, is his camera. Ah, okay. So he, creepily enough, he has his eye in his mouth. Uh -huh. um, but uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a pretty core piece of the robot because it's really his main input. It's his main source okay. of, of sensor input. So it's a, cameras are, are by their nature a very data-rich 
mm-hmm. source of information. Um, and they're also very inexpensive. So that's a good combination. Right. Right. So he is, that's his primary way of sensing the world is through vision. So he, that's how he knows where his cubes are. He can see them. Uh, he estimates their poses in, in three dimensions very accurately so that he can pick them up, mm. stack them. Um, he can perceive motion uh, and he also uh, sees faces, both human faces and, and cat and dog faces. Um, mm. And beyond detecting faces, he can also learn to recognize human faces. So you can teach him your name and he'll remember you. Oh, wow. What's some of the technologies that go into making this happen from a, a CV and an algorithmic perspective? Sure. So, I mean, face detection is certainly a big one. Face detection and face recognition. There's a lot of sort of proprietary stuff around how we do the 3D pose estimation of the cubes. Mm-hmm. Um, there's intelligent reasoning about, uh, given the geometry we know of the robot and the the, uh, the the specifics of the camera, which we know, the intrinsic parameters of the camera, we can do things like reason about the ground plane in front of the robot. Even though he doesn't have a depth sensor, we can start reasoning about the, the ground plane in front of him, uh, which turns out to be pretty powerful. Um, and then we layer on top of this, right, all these all, lots of other technologies, including sort of low-level motor controls, path planning, um, and... I hesitate to use the word AI because, or the, the acronym AI, it's, it's so overloaded at this point, yeah, but yeah. The, the, sort of the AI behind um, how Cosmo uh, models his emotional state and how that drives what behavior he choose to, chooses to do at any moment. Hmm. Like I said, he is sort of, if you leave him alone, he is sort of on his own. You're not remote controlling this robot. He's his right, own character. Right. So what makes him decide to do, you know, A or B at any given moment and how do we keep that making sense? It can't just be random and it can't, also can't be scripted. So hmm. uh, it, how, to, how to drive that behavior system. Uh, well, let's maybe start with the computer vision stuff. You know, there are lots of ways to do computer vision, traditional stuff, and uh, convolutional neural nets sure. are obviously very popular. When I look at this thing and think about, like, the, uh, you know, price point power, stuff like that, I'm guessing that you're not running you neural it. nets in there. Yeah. Well, there's, there's another reason for that, actually, which, which people tend to forget, given how popular they are in the news now. Uh-huh. So this product actually started before we even launched Drive, which was back in 2013. So okay. I, I was the first person working on the product. There was nobody else doing anything yet. There was no code yet. Okay. There was also no really, no, you know, okay, so I shouldn't say there was no deep learning because neural nets have been around a long time, but right. there was no, the, the revolution, if I, if you will, hadn't occurred yet. We forget the, that we're still it's at the right so early. right? <laughs> yeah, and TensorFlow didn't exist yet. Like all these right. things people are, you know, so familiar with now and uh, it wasn't even around yet. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm what's known as a, a classically trained computer vision engineer, which is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> Um, so yeah, we certainly, when we started all this and started picking hardware and nailing down price points and, and, mm-hmm. uh, and what sort of processing power he was going to have, we actually did start to do a lot of the vision on board, but again, with more classical techniques, Okay, you know, for face detection, more things more like Viola Jones face detection. Like what? Viola Jones. It's sort of a classical Viola way of, of doing face what detection. What is that? It's uh, a means of progressively filtering an image with, um, more and more very, very simple, simply designed filters that are very, very fast okay. uh, in order to, um, via cascade, sort of rule things out slowly over time, but, uh, but be very efficient and, and eventually learn the pattern in the image. It's basically looking at, at, at local contrast patterns in the image that look like a face. Mm. Works very well and it's, it's still often used today. So that's the, the kind of thing that we would that- use face or no face or is it what allows you to identify individual people can you that, that so with, yeah that is face or no face so okay. that's what i would call face detection okay and then i would i would contrast that with face recognition which Got is it. one given a face who is it okay exactly exactly so um so anyway we sort of started by doing that in the market detection trying to do it on the robot 
we were able to get actually quite far with that, but at some point realized, okay, this is just this is just too limiting. We always knew there would be a companion app the same way that there is with uh-huh. OverDrive. Um, and at some point we decided, all right, we're gonna we're gonna take the plunge and just put all the smarts really in the device. Oh, so really? the way the product works works is that you have an app that connects to where you connect your device to Cosmo's Wi-Fi hotspot, mm-hmm. and he's actually streaming his images to your device and all of the computer vision path planning, et cetera, is actually happening on your, on your device. Oh, interesting. Um, and that's what, again, like as you, as you pointed out, that's what allows us to sell it at a price point and a scale that, that we're able to. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, especially given hardware from you know, three plus years ago, I, there's just no way we could have gotten all the, all the capability on the, on the robot. Right, right. Is there some limited ability to operate if the, you know, say your iPad runs out of battery or something Mm -hmm. like that? Is it able to go into some kind of autonomous mode? Very, very little. So, I mean, he'll sort of like shut himself down. We try not to just have him die. (laughs) But uh, but it really is, it is quite tied to the device because so much of it lives there. All the animation, in fact, um, so we haven't talked a lot about the animation, but the animations that play on him, the sound, his facial animations are Mm -hmm. also actually all stored on the on the device, oh, really? and so there's so while those are streaming to him, his images are streaming back to the device. So there's a lot of data going back and forth. Oh wow! Now I should say it's all within that network. Network. There's no cloud anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is sort of a closed and network. It's Bluetooth or it, that's pure Wi-Fi. It's pure Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi. Yeah. Okay. The, the problem with Bluetooth, which is actually what we use for OverDrive, is just bandwidth to send. Um, we couldn't stream the images at oh. full frame rate over Bluetooth. Okay. So the robot controls we could, but the the actual image data we couldn't. Okay. So you started looking at, for the image detection, the Viola Norbert. Is that the <laughs> Viola Jones. Viola Jones. Uh, well, I, I like I'm Norbert, not thinking though. of Norbert. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Well, uh, so okay. we should, that's a new algorithm. We'll have to, we'll have to develop it ourselves. <laughs> and so is that what you ended up doing on the device? Or now that you have access to the device, you, you're able to do more sophisticated things? Um, that's, I mean... Uh, without going into too much detail, that's that's basically what's what's running uh, for the detection. But cubes is a completely different thing. Um, those are detected via a, sort of a proprietary method um, that both allows us to detect the cubes and then um, estimate their pose in three D. And and again, that's super important because his little fingers that he has to get in the little slots to pick up the mm-hmm. cubes, you know, there's only a couple millimeters of slot there. Mm-hmm. And we've got a robot driving around on treads, and treads are really hard to model. So mm-hmm. the way he moves. Uh, we really have to be able to get feedback constantly about where the cube actually is so that we can drive him accurately and pick up the cubes. Mm-hmm. That, that was just a huge part of the, the project for a very long time was just how do we make this thing pick up cubes? Mm. Wow. Can you, um, understanding that it's, it's a proprietary approach, can you give mm-hmm. us some analogies that help us understand you know, sure. what are the technical challenges beyond you know, obviously the, the precision that you just um, mentioned? Right. Um, you know, what are some of the kind of algorithmic approaches you, you looked at before you went down the path of needing to roll your own? Um, you know, what might you consider if you were starting again, that mm-hmm. kind of thing? Well, so the, the obvious thing, if you look at these cubes, um, is probably maybe a QR code. Um, uh-huh. So it, it's sort of along those lines. There's a, one big reason we didn't go QR code is, is the appearance. And, you know, we are a tech company. We're building technical products. But there's a big design component to this, how the robot looks, how he behaves, and what we wanted the cubes to look like. And mm-hmm. um, stylistically, nobody liked the QR codes. They just, mm. they, they sort of screamed the wrong thing for the product. So one of the things we wanted to develop was a similar idea um, that allowed us to encode information on the sides of the cubes that gave mm. him information, but, but that gave us aesthetic control over what, what they looked like. And yeah. so it's, it's a similar idea to, to QR codes in some sense, um, but with the sort of aesthetic component. 
Um, and then as, as far as uh, estimating the 3D pose, um, what it effectively comes down to is that we know points on the cube, points mm -hmm. on the marker that are inside the cube, and we know the intrinsic calibration of the camera. It's basically, it's focal length. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a whole other interesting uh, issue. We have to calibrate every robot individually in the factory to get that. Um, and given those two things, we can see where those known 3D locations on the cube project into the image. So we, once we find them in the image and we know the 3D shape they belong to, via that correspondence and, and, and some math, uh, you can sort of back out where that 3D object must be in order to have projected that pattern. Mm. And the 3D points that you're referring to are so any uh, of the so anything no decals or yeah yeah, yeah. so, okay. so any, anything we know you could use anything really um, but you you just want the, a very accurate known right. position on the cube so you've got these known uh, graphics you know we can call them mm -hmm, codes mm -hmm. they're not QR codes but right. you know when you look at them you look like you you think that you know these are just like you know graphical flourishes but. Uh, you look more closely and you can see that each of the sides is unique and yep. they're conveying yep. some yep. kind yep. of people information. people don't often notice that. That was actually, it's one of the challenges of designing them is that we had sort of competing goals. One was that we wanted all sides of the cube to sort of look the same so that this cube had sort of one marker on it. Yeah. But we also wanted Cosmo to be able to tell the difference from the different sides because he can control the lights and we want to know which light he's turning on, for example. Oh, yeah, I didn't even notice that. So this is your... So yeah, there's four lights on top. Okay. Uh, but I was also noticing that this, like this cube in the middle, is kind of like your paperclip cube. Yeah, that's, that's looks exactly like what I say it looks like as a paperclip. That one looks like kind of a stack of things. Everybody's got their own uh, what they see in these things. Your Rorschach, yeah. uh, Rorschach diagram. <laughs> exactly, or exactly. This one looks like uh, this one looks like a baby in yep. fetal pose. Yep, that's that's a common <laughs> one too. It is funny what people see in these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was hard because part of the design here was. Um, well, like I said, we wanted an aesthetic component, but we also, at the time we were locking down making the all the hardware, uh -huh. um, we, we didn't necessarily want to commit ourselves to a particular meaning. So, you know, if you made it the, the treasure chest cube, it's like, well, does, yeah. does everything he do, does with the cube have to relate somehow to a treasure right, chest? Right, right. So we didn't want to get too, um, too much iconography. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, these are sort of these general purpose... Uh, designs. The challenge that we sort of realized later is that exactly what you just experienced is how to refer to them is very, very difficult. Yeah. Customer care, you know, when they get a call about a cube or something, they're always like, all right, there's actually a number engraved in there that you can find so you can actually well, figure out Well, and obviously it, it would have been to like make them different colors. Did that yeah, mess yeah, up yeah, your yeah. algorithms or something? Or? No, no, the color would have been okay. Um, I think, again, it's just from a design perspective. I think they wanted them to match more. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. And so I understand for the people that are listening that this is a very visual yeah, conversation. Yeah. Some, so you know, talking about computer vision. Is sort of yeah, exactly. So uh, we'll definitely, I'm, I'm going to, at the very minimum, include some pictures of what we're talking about on the show notes page, but I'm more likely, uh, or as well, going to maybe shoot some some video of this thing in action and post yeah. it up on uh, up on our YouTube channel. One thing that often I think surprises people after hearing it talked about or referred to, uh, I don't think they realize how small he is. I didn't either. Yeah, I, people I was really generally. Surprised. That's why I like to bring one. Generally, people I think imagine him much larger, but yeah. um, for, for for the listeners, he's actually sort of fits in the size of your palm of your, palm of your hand. So he's uh -huh. he's quite tiny, um, and that that's for a couple of reasons. Um, one is actually uh, maybe non-obvious, which is for him to have the personality he does and to move around as fast as he does to mm -hmm. exhibit that personality and be, be, you know, sort of cute and playful, he has to move quickly. And if you build a heavy, big robot, mm -hmm. um, you know, if his little lifter here moved too fast and you got your finger in there, you would actually hurt yourself. Mm. So it, it, in some sense, there's a safety component to, to it. Um, but also, it, it all, um, 
it's also just part of his personality. It makes sense for him to be cute. It's sort of weird yeah. if he's too big. And we and we have, I mean, I don't remember. It was forty or sixty or something different design iterations on this thing. Okay, and some of them were much bigger, and and uh, the the smaller ones always went out. It just feels right for him to be in the palm of your hand, and then that in turn sort of. Uh, uh, has has impact on the way the sound design is done. What, mm-hmm. what should he sound like given how big he is? Mm. The difficult side, of course, is really for the manufacturing and, and mechanical engineers to squeeze in all the 300 and something parts right. into this tiny little robot. There's like right. no free space inside that thing. I, is, I can imagine. Packed. I can imagine. So we were talking about the size of this thing, uh, of the cubes. Mm-hmm. So you've got these, uh, and uh, this... It's kind of algorithm is kind of interesting. So you've got these, you know, each of the cubes has uh, six sides. It has kind of a QR code like thing mm-hmm. that is a consistent design element for each cube. Mm-hmm. And then this thing can look at a cube and you know, it's probably relatively easy to identify if a cube is in the frame. Mm-hmm. And then it can kind of pick out the, you know, the kind of infer the angle of the different sides that it's able to see Mm -hmm. and from that kind of figure out you can make create some model a model like a projection i'm thinking of that uh it's projective geometry is what it all comes down to okay the projection of 3d points onto the 2d plane of the image yeah and and given we know what the 3d points are and you can back into a rotational exactly you get rotation and translation and yep okay that's exactly right and then you would feed that into whatever like like classical control algorithms to make it you know move to the thing lift it up yeah look at plan it. a path into a known location with respect to that cube yeah. uh and then yeah it's sort of a control problem of as i'm driving forward make sure i keep it in the right place until yeah. i finger my fingers get in there and and, and pick it up that yes. seems amazingly sophisticated for this little yeah people don't understand how, how hard that is <laughs> one of the things that i think actually is pretty interesting about this and it's it's i think more for robotics geeks than than the average consumer is that um, one of the things that, that holds robotics back from doing more and more, I think, uh, in consumer products is manipulation, is the ability to to, uh, to change the world around you. Mm-hmm. It's, it's still a very, very hard problem, both yeah. mechanically and uh, from sort of an AI standpoint, from a software standpoint. Yeah. Um, so I would argue this is sort of the first, first little mobile manipulator, uh, especially at this scale and this price point. I mean, Roombas are effectively a manipulator in that they, they suck up stuff. Mm-hmm. So they're they're doing some work. But, but, you know, Cosmo can actually, yeah, do this hard, very hard problem of driving, driving up, picking up a uh, picking up a cube and then stacking on top of another cube. And mm-hmm. that's, it's not an easy thing to do. It is yeah. definitely not an easy thing to do. The other half, though, um, that may not be obvious, it's definitely not obvious, about the cubes. So not only do they have lights, they also okay. have an accelerometer inside of them. Okay. So Cosmo talks to them over uh, a radio connection, which is kind of like Bluetooth. Okay. Um, and um, that allows him to know via the accelerometer if the cube has moved. So if I pick up mm. the cube, he's, he's aware. And what that means is that if, so if I've seen the cube and I've estimated its 3D pose with mm-hmm. respect to the robot and the cube doesn't move, now I can also do the reverse. If I drive around in Cosmos or I pick up Cosmo. And you can locate down, Cosmo based on Once the he sees location. the cube again, if it hasn't moved, he now knows his position with respect to the cube, oh, which means he now knows his position with respect to the old map he was building. Okay. So he, it's something that I think people tend to forget is it's not just like, pure stimulus response, ooh cube, ooh face, ooh whatever. Right. He's remembering all of this, right? Mm-hmm. He's keeping up with the 3D poses of the cubes. He's keeping up with where you are in space once he sees you. Mm-hmm. And there's there's big reasons for that. It makes him look smarter. It allows yeah. him to do, um, do behaviors which uh, turn out to be super important. So for example, if right before he decides he's gonna go pick up this cube and he knows you're you know off to his right, he might stop and do the same thing a little kid does, which is look, look up, look up at you and make sure you're uh-huh. watching him. 
And that little moment of eye contact makes it more about this this sort of interactive experience where you're drawn in and he you know you're very aware that oh he knows I'm here right as opposed to I'm just a spectator watching a robot pick up a cube it's like oh Cosmo hmm. knows I'm watching him huh. and and that little bit of 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 the the mixture of sort of that that technical component that technical capability with the character and personality I think is a really good example of like how all this starts to fit together interesting um, so you you kind of you didn't actually literally use air quotes when you said AI with related <laughs> right. with relation to the personality, uh-huh. but um, you know clearly there's a connection uh, between you know the way we think about AI and you know the idea of personality. Like, mm-hmm. what are some of the um, you know how are you doing that? What are some mm-hmm. of the um, approaches to sort of personality? This thing, personality, yeah, yeah. So I, I maybe I mentioned there's. Uh, um, there's this notion of, of Cosmo having uh, emotion. Mm-hmm. So he does, we do internally model his emotional state. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how, how happy versus sad he is, how calm versus anxious he is, how um, socialized versus lonely he is. I don't remember if those are all the same words we actually use in the code, but mm-hmm. he effectively has this set of traits or, or properties which are changing all the time and different uh, things that happen to Cosmo affect them. Mm-hmm. So uh, another good example involving faces is that you know, he's sort of designed to be a social friendly robot. Mm-hmm. And so he, we've sort of, you know, defined his personality to be one that enjoys what, you know, being surrounded by people. So mm-hmm. if he's driving around for a long time, he doesn't see anyone at some point, his, his, uh, his loneliness may creep up. Mm-hmm. And once it, it gets high enough, it may trigger him to switch into a behavior, which is look for faces because mm-hmm. he's, he's lonely. So he'll, he'll, that'll, that'll change him to a mode where now he keeps, he's keeping his head tilted up mm-hmm. and he's looking around and, you know, he's not distracted by his cubes hmm. or whatever. He, he wants to find a person, he sees a person. And now that uh, sort of triggers an emotional change where his, his, social, his socialization goes up and his, mm-hmm. his loneliness goes back down. That allows him to switch out of the behavior and do something else. Hmm. So that's sort of an, the idea of what I was referring to earlier of um, preventing it from being either just random behaviors, which right. at, over time you can tell is random, or being fully scripted, which also doesn't feel natural. So it, it is in response to what's been happening and what is currently happening to him. Is there a notion of like a kind of a long-term personality, meaning the uh, thing that came to mind is like the Microsoft Tay chatbot that got trained by, you know, Twitter to be, you know, a Nazi. Right, right. Um, Like if you, you know, if you ignore your Cosmo long enough, like Mm -hmm. will it become like permanently sad or something like that? It's a very good example. You you hit exactly the... (laughs) So the answer is no. <laughs> you had exactly the reason. Um, we we were concerned. Yeah, like what happens if you just your robot ends up like irreparably depressed? And it's not. It's not really what we wanted. And we felt like what we were trying to create was there. There is a, a definition we have of who Cosmo is and what his personality is. We have you know character designers who that is their job. They are the owner of what. Who is Cosmo? What are his motivations? Mm-hmm. These sorts of questions. And it's not necessarily, it's not, it's Cosmo. It's not my Cosmo. Like when I take it, take it out of the box, there's not like a random seed that, or, you know, right. something that on a, on a, maybe more continuous than a random seed, but that says, you know, this is, you know, my Cosmo's personality. It's mm-hmm. more Cosmo's personality. And I think that's something we're interested in exploring, but at this point, right, the sort of the, what I would call the personality is more fixed. Yeah. And we're in more control of that. The, the mood, I would call it, which is more transient. Yeah, uh, is is what you're controlling by what you do with him, and you know if he keeps falling on the floor, or um, yeah, if he doesn't see anybody for a while again, he might get mm-hmm. might get lonely. Those sorts of things, but they don't they don't exhibit sort of a long term uh, effect. 
because it can be very hard to control like wait what where does that where does yeah. that go and yeah. so yeah we sort of i think we're a little a little cautious about that okay and so you, you kind of uh you know on one end you've got you know random on another end you've got totally scripted you know, I'm imagining somewhere in the middle is like a state machine that's sufficiently complex that it right. doesn't seem like either of the two. Is it right. kind of like that? Kind yeah, I of think that's a fair. Or? That's a fair comparison. There are sort of there are sort of predefined behaviors and and for example, games that he can play, which mm-hmm. themselves are little state machines, which are mm-hmm. which are very much engineered. Um, and the look for faces thing, right? Like he didn't sort of we didn't learn that behavior of how to look for right. faces. Right? We, okay, we, what what it means is you need to look <laughs> up and kind of look around in this right. way, and those things right. are sort of are sort of tuned. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think looking at it as a state machine where uh, the, the transitions between states are very much driven by not only his sensor input, but also the sort of underlying emotion engine is sort of a good mm-hmm. way to think about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess one of the questions that jumps out to me as a, you know, as a geek, I guess, is like, is this thing programmable? Can I like, awesome question. you know, try to, can I use it as an experimentation platform? Absolutely. Or? So that is actually one of the, one thing that I, I'm super excited about that we have done with the product and actually we did from day one. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we launched it, Cosmo comes with an SDK. Okay. So uh, in fact, not everyone realizes it, but in the app that you use to talk to Cosmo, if you go to settings, you scroll over, there's a button which says enable SDK. Everybody has this huh. um, out of the box. So you enable the SDK, you plug your device into your computer over mm-hmm. USB, and then you can program in with Python. Um, oh, wow. And it is an extremely full-featured and, and ever-expanding uh, SDK. It's actually totally incredible, all the things you can do. Hmm. Having, having done a PhD in robotics on, uh, you know, sort of research platforms, which cost tens of thousands of dollars yeah. and are usually broken, the fact that this $179 robot allows you to do, you know, totally low-level motion control or motor control all the way up to just flip on face recognition and just use it and path planning oh, wow. uh, is crazy. And, and it's designed for, you know, six-year-olds, so it can fall off the table and not break. Mm-hmm. So it is an awesome p- programming platform. It's actually being used um, both at Carnegie Mellon and Georgia Tech, uh, I guess both my alma maters, um, <laughs> uh, in their programming classes, both at okay. undergrad and graduate level. We've got some, some cool... Um, uh, I can't think of the name right now, of uh, like programming camps in the summer. Okay. Uh, they've start, they're starting to adopt Cosmo... Uh, as oh, wow. that platform. And so in, in concert with all this, so I've mentioned the SDK, uh, you know, that's sort of full-blown geek level robotics uh, programming you can do yeah. as, a, as a as sort of an ex well, not an expert, but, you know, someone in, at a graduate or undergraduate level or someone who really knows Python. Uh, people, by the way, are also writing, uh, creating movies with him online by scripting him with, with the SDK, which is, which is really cute. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's not, there's a, there's actually a whole YouTube channel. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's uh, Life with Cosmo is, is one worth checking out. There's oh, been wow. some really... Really, really creative videos done with him. Huh. Um, super impressive stuff. And it's all, all through the SDK. So it's, it's really cool to see both it used for research and also for creative outlets like that. Yeah. Um, but so beyond that, there's a, there's a whole bunch of other stuff, which is um, uh, Scratch-based programming. Okay. So um, Scratch is a uh, drag-and-drop block-based mm-hmm. visual programming language uh, developed by MIT and Google. And last summer, we actually released an early version of that where you could effectively sequence the robots. You had a few very basic blocks, and you could sort of, you know, do, do things like drive straight, turn right, look up. Um, you could do fun things like wait until you see face smiling. So you could actually have Cosmo do, you know, drive straight, look up, and then sit there. And then once he saw a face smiling, he would proceed to the next block. Mm-hmm. So you could do fun little programs <clears throat> like that. And that was meant for the other end of the spectrum. People okay. have never written a line of code, have no idea about it. And it teaches you how to break a problem down into steps, how to write a sequence of, you know, how to sequence that. 
and uh, and some 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 of the basics that you can do with a robot. So now, we, so at that point, we had sort of the very beginning end of the spectrum and the you know the sort of graduate level programming level end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And last fall, we actually released um, what we call Code Lab, which took that early version of Scratch and added to it another mode, which is more advanced. So we have what we call now sandbox mode and constructor mode. Hmm. And for, for, for listeners who know, those basically correspond to horizontal and vertical grammar in Scratch. Horizontal is sort of sequencing and vertical allows you to actually do branching and loops and more complex structures, but still okay. visually. So we took CodeLab Constructor and really basically enabled almost anything you could do in the SDK, but in, in drag and drop programming with bugs. Oh, wow. So it's it's actually uh, the first time I used it, I was I was kind of blown away at how much how easy it was and how much you could build, how quickly you can do math in there, you can do you know logical huh. operations, you can really do whatever. It's got you know trig functions in it, you can do whatever you want. Wow. So now we sort of have this full spectrum of you know very beginner level uh, drag and drop sequencing to really full blown programming with but still with drag and drop blocks, mm-hmm. so that you can kind of see how that works. And then you know once you're uh, once you're sort of comfortable there, you could easily transition into Python and, and understand hmm. how, to, how to write code there. So it's a really nice uh, transition. And, and to sort of move that along, um, in CodeLab, we've also reached, released these featured products or projects, and we are uh, continuing to do that. So it's cool because we can build a little fun activity with CodeLab. Yeah. But in the app, it comes up as a little you know, icon. You open it up. Oh, this sounds fun. You can play it. It's a little game or a little activity mm-hmm. like making Cosmo play different instruments when you tap on the box, for example. Okay. Um, all written in CodeLab. And the cool thing is there's a button on all of them that says see inside. So you click that button and then it actually shows you the full uh, scratch block based uh, program. And you can sort of see like, oh, now I see how they did that. And you can customize it or whatever. But it's it's sort of like the old way we all learned to write web pages is to mm-hmm. be the source and be like, oh, I, I see how they did that. Huh. Um, and so it's, it's again, a, a really cool way to kind of dive in and get some ideas for what's, what's possible. And now with the, the SDK and the, the, um, the Scratch piece, you, you mentioned low-level motor control. Do you, can you also get a feed of the images and like try to, you know, say you want to play with your own facial mm-hmm. recognition uh, yeah, algorithm? Yeah, totally totally feed. No, in the SDK, yeah, you can get the image feed. It's a little harder to do that in Scratch okay. how to display it. That's something that I think is is worth exploring. But yes, in the SDK, absolutely, we've had people do that. You know, people okay. who are um, computer vision researchers in grad school who want a robot, yeah, they don't want to deal with the path planning part of it, right? Like, right. all right, I found the thing and I know it's an obstacle in 3D and I want to drive a path around it. I'm focused on the vision. I don't care about the path planning. They mm. can use the path planning, but they get their image feed and they can do their own detection. So people oh, have done... There's been interesting work, like taking Cosmos Image Feed and running it through, you know, some of the popular deep learning uh, networks and, yeah. and learning to recognize objects and things. Again, they have the power of a whole laptop uh, right. to run it on. But yeah, we've seen people do some really interesting projects, and we have a very active developer forum on our website. People post this kind of stuff all the time, okay. and uh, we've had really, really great response. Huh. Interesting. Uh, so what? Uh, like, what's next for the, you know, either this product or the, mm-hmm. the company? Like, is it building on this as a platform or coming out with the next, you know, the next robot or the next thing? Yes, yes, and yes. Um, <laughs> so there's not so much I can say about too far down the, uh, down the road, but I will say, uh, yes, we're adding, we're, we're definitely uh, expanding uh, Cosmos capabilities. We want to be able to, you know, see and understand more. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that, uh, a lot of the, the user-facing stuff uh, in the near future is, is focused around CodeLab. One of the benefits of 
of having this code lab universe where these have, we have these projects is that it also makes it easier for us to release new content. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't need a C++ developer who knows all about robotics to write a new little fun activity. Yeah. We can have a, a, a designer or game developer who may not be as much of a uh, hardcore coder, mm-hmm. but has a cool idea. Right. And they can drag and drop box and make a project and that can be part of the app. Mm. We can also take user content. So we can right. you can send us your content, you can share your projects and you know cool stuff that, that actually is neat we, we might actually deploy with the, the next version of the app so hmm. the there's a lot of stuff around code lab coming um and there, there are new things coming uh, in the cosmo product line which i can't can't say too much about mm-hmm. um and then i guess long term i guess i would go back to saying how at the beginning i said we're a consumer robotics company i didn't say we were a toy company mm-hmm. um we're currently focused in, in entertainment and that's very deliberate um for a couple of reasons one we felt that at the to develop this, the, the capabilities we needed both technically and from a manufacturing scale and price point perspective, this was a good place for us to start, mm-hmm. build an actual product that we could sell and market and build a successful company on, um, as opposed to jumping to the, the far end of like, we're going to have a humanoid in your home and it's going to clean your house. Right, right. Yeah, and, and how are we going to fund that company, right? right so they're right. trying to keep an, keep an eye on building a, a business at the same time and how to mm-hmm. take steps you know, sort of build products as stepping stones as we build out core technologies and core capabilities to get to those uh, those big fancy robots everybody wants. Mm-hmm. Um, Seems like a lot of the companies in this space take that approach in some way, shape, or form. Like yeah. iRobot's got, you know, we know them for the, the vacuum cleaner, right. but they've got, you know, a lot of government robots and mm-hmm. defense robots. And um, I'm sure they're kind of eyeing this, you know, the home robotics market and as that grows and creates opportunities. Um, yeah, I think that, that and, and that's, you know, I think it's a necessary a necessary thing. People often, you know, the, the, everyone sees what the stuff in movies and TV, right? And that's what right. they want. But, you know, despite all the headlines about AI and deep learning, et cetera, we're, yeah. it's still a long way off. Yeah. And so I think, you know, being careful about uh, uh, building that technology out in a very deliberate manner and and uh, and creating products along the way that make good products themselves mm-hmm. is important because you know to us a robot is not a product it is a technology right. it, is a, it is an encapsulation of technologies um, together which make a product but you still need a product idea mm-hmm. and um, and I think to that to that end so not only are we trying to build those technologies the other thing that we feel is important we like to say sort of not only is the IQ of the robot important the techie smarts AI. But the EQ is also important. Mm. If we're going to build mm-hmm. these robots and they're going to be living in our homes, and that is our goal. We want a robot in every home. Uh, th- those robots, we don't want them to be weird appliances that sit off in the corner that, right. you know, it's this strange thing that you don't interact with. It, it's, it's, we've seen this with Cosmo. It's a really interesting moment when you make eye contact with the robot or you assign personality to it or, or you know, have a bond with it. And we definitely see it with this little robot. Um, it's a whole different experience. And so I think that that uh, expertise we're building in, in how to how to take things we know about movies and character design and deploy them in hardware mm. and, and deal with that side of the human-robot interaction uh, piece of the puzzle is is also super important and I think will you know be important for all our products in the future. Mm. Uh, are there any kind of learnings that you can kind of encapsulate for us on, uh, I guess, the intersection of AI and consumer electronics or like, you know, the, the challenges of putting AI and consumer electronics in this podcast. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about, you know, enterprisey stuff and, and industrial robots mm-hmm, and things mm-hmm. like that. And I'm wondering about, uh, you know, the specifics of 
you know, AI and, you know, games and entertainment and mm-hmm. toys and electronics and that kind of thing? Yeah, I think uh, a few things. Consumers don't actually care about, I mean, I think your <laughs> listeners do and I do, but at, at large, consumers don't care about the actual tech, right? Yeah, they don't, yeah. They just want it to work and be cool. And right. like, we all walk around with cell phones in our pocket. How many people have any idea how that technology works, right? right? It's ridiculous right. what we do every day on our cell phones, but right. people just want like it to do all that awesome stuff. Yeah. And I think that is one thing is you, as engineers working on their product, I have to remember computer vision is not the product. Hmm. There's a product and it has goals and computer, computer vision is in service of those goals, mm-hmm. uh, not the other way around. So mm-hmm. we often, you know, it, don't use sort of the, the latest and greatest uh, tech or idea because it's like, well, can the users going to be able to tell if we're doing that? Like, what is the actual end result of using that technology? Mm-hmm. So I think keeping in mind that, you know, in the consumer space, you're building a consumer product. You're not necessarily building a technology uh, that's sort of B2B and will be used in other products. And yeah. keeping that that end goal in mind is is um, probably one of the big ones. I think another big thing about using AI and particularly, you know, everything over the last in years is about probabilistic reasoning effectively, mm-hmm. right? And uh, people want a yes or a no or a, a guaranteed it's going to work in these cases and it won't work in those cases. And if there's anything we know, it's that you it's very hard to to nail that down. You can say it's based on our data, it's going to work 95% of the time. Well, yeah. like enumerating the 5% of the cases, you can't do it. And so a lot of what we spend our time doing is, you know, it's, it's sort of easy to get the early prototype of the cool behavior. It's the, what do you do in the weird edge case it, and, and uh, 5% of the time that it doesn't work mm-hmm. uh, situations. All those edge cases are really complicated. You know, we have mm. kid picks up a robot right in the middle of behavior X or animation Y. Right. And it's like, okay, wait, so what happens then? And, you know, just enumerating all possible states in the state machine is not really a viable solution yeah. either. Um, so I think edge case handling is is a big, big deal when you start mm-hmm. trying to deploy these things that you know will have failures or have false positives. It, it, how do you how do you incorporate that into the product as opposed to pretending it doesn't exist because it will happen? And have you developed any uh, methodology for tackling that specific issue, or is it you know each behavior, each edge case is mm-hmm. different, and it's just knowing that you need to think that through. That that's, is... a good, that's a good question. Um, I think we have, particularly our guys that work on more specifically and, and focused on that behavior system, um, I would say a little bit of both. They, over time, the way that our behaviors in code are engineered are designed to sort of uh, handle things better naturally just by virtue of the way you know the system architecture is set up. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are sort of ways to build what we have learned, I think, into the system. But there is a lot of, you know, that sort of secret sauce, black magic thing with sort of like deep learning. Like there's things that I feel like people can't quite explain yet. It's just sort of like, I've just done this enough. I kind of know what's, mm. what is and isn't going to happen. And so mm-hmm. some of it, I think, is just uh, at this point, uh, you know, our, our internal uh, knowledge of how, to, how it works. But yeah, I think it actually, over time, as you start to codify what those things are, there, there are definitely places in the code where the architecture, again, supports that or makes it easier or handles things for you that you've sort of realized this always happens. We need a way to just automatically detect and handle that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, anything else on your things to think about from a consumer products perspective? Hmm. I think those are probably the big ones. Um, I guess the other one, given that data is such a huge thing, right, for, mm. all, for training all these models and labeling is such a huge thing, um, I think for robots in particular, uh, and you know, in images in particular within that, um, 
getting training data is, is I think, even harder on robots because the degree to which the robot's view of the world and images mined from the web differ is, is huge. So mm-hmm. the statistics of the data yeah. that a robot sees, it's all motion blurry or terribly exposed or like half your arm or whatever. Like nobody has actually pointed the camera at something and taken a picture. Mm-hmm. There's, I think people tend to forget that like there's already some selection bias in mining uh, images from the web right. or, or images from Facebook or whatever because somebody held the camera and took the photo. Right. They framed the shot. Well, well, from a robot and decided to upload and decided to upload it exactly very true and so you know Cosmos is driving around taking images all the time and so right. you just get weird random garbage all the time and terrible exposures and you know bad white balance and lots of motion blur and a weird mm. perspective he's looking up at the world nobody mm-hmm. takes pictures from there mm-hmm. so gathering that data uh, is is a big challenge and um, I think it's not to be underestimated that it, how much it, it matters to try to get um, to try to get data appropriate for, you know, your problem uh, hmm. when it's when it's robotics and, and not, you know, something else. It seems else. like that'd be easy. Like you just make, you know, a hundred of these and throw a bunch of blocks around and like have them run around and shoot a bunch of videos. I mean, it depends the problem you're trying to solve, right? If, I guess if, if it's the If blo- it's a block, you can probably sort of right. design a scenario. You're right. Some situations, If it's I the think people it's interaction thing, that's yeah, a Yeah, people vary a lot. Hitting varies a whole lot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, all these things are, are challenging, just different types of rooms. You know, we, we're building it in an office, right? Yeah. The office environment looks very different from people's homes. Right. So, but we also don't, for privacy reasons, we're not just going to gather people data from people's homes and upload it to our servers. So, right. yeah, the data collection problem is a is a, is a mm. big one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, makes sense. Well, Andrew, this has been a great uh, a great conversation. What I'm going to do now is uh, I'm going to hit pause and go grab my camera, and we'll kind of let you fire this thing up okay. and see it in action. Um, so, for the folks that are listening on the podcast, uh, they may not catch this part, um, but uh, jump over to our YouTube uh, channel and you'll check this out. Uh, but for those who uh, aren't going to do that or um, will be doing that later once they're off the train or whatever, thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to chat with me. Sure. No, it's been fun. Lots of good questions. Awesome. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for your continued feedback and support. Remember, For your chance to win in our AI at Home giveaway, head on over to twimlai.com slash myaicontest for complete details. For more information on Andrew, Cosmo, or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 102. Thanks once again to Intel AI for their sponsorship of this series. To learn more about their partnership with Ferrari North America Challenge and the other things they've been up to, visit ai.intel.com. Of course, we'd be delighted to hear from you, either via a comment on the show notes page or via Twitter, directly to me at, at Sam Charrington or to the show at, at Twimmel AI. Thanks once again for listening and catch you next time.